moving into how then should we live? How does this change our, our identity? How does this change the way we live? How does this change the way that we think? And so we hit that point there in verse 19, and you see some of those cue words there with, therefore, brothers, since we, and so we are, are told to look back. We're preaching today 26 through 31, but I will be jumping back a little bit into the text we looked at last week, just so the argument fits well and makes sense altogether. But the overall context of the message today is, if you can remember, we've labored through Hebrews now to consider Jesus. And it's painted Jesus in the most beautiful way possible. And we've considered him, we've considered him as superior to all these other elements, to Moses, to the angels, to Aaron, to the law, to the other priests. And we've come to this point and we're considering Jesus Christ once again. And primarily now as we come to this middle section of chapter 10, we're considering Jesus Christ as that perfect once for all sacrifice. The one, the perfect, true, pure sacrifice who ended them all. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and all these laws and sacrifice after sacrifice offered by a sinful priest who had to purify himself over and over. Again, Jesus Christ came and offering himself the perfect sacrifice, it changed everything. So we consider him that way as the perfect sacrifice. And then we consider him as our perfect high priest. It says there in that kind of transition section, verses 19 through 21, that we have a new and a living way. And that is the sacrifices that were offered before, the lamb, the bull, or whatever it is that was sacrificed, it was consumed and it was gone. And now we have to find a new one. And we offer it. And it's consumed and it's gone. And now we have to find a new one. And we offer it. And with Jesus Christ, he was sacrificed once for all. But as the perfect, spotless, righteous son of God, death had no hold on him. He beat it. He rose victorious. And so we now have a new and a living way. We have a priest who lives eternally pleading on our behalf before the Father, making intercession for us before the Father. So we've we've labored hard to come to this point. And now the apostle, as Hebrews really functions as a sermon, as he comes to this point, he turns and says, Therefore, because of this, remember, consider Jesus and it changes everything. And we were given three commands in that last section. We were told to draw near. To draw near to God in confidence. With hearts undivided. Embracing forgiveness by faith. Draw near to God. He's made that way accessible. The curtain was torn in two through the body of Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross we have access to God the Father, draw near with confidence. Secondly, we were told to hold fast our confession. We looked at what that meant. It meant a statement of truth, something that you articulate, something that has consequence if you believe it or not. Don't lay aside that truth. No matter how unpopular it might be, it might become. Hold fast. We talked about sometimes a Christian life, and I watched like 10 minutes of this track meet on TV yesterday. And watching these guys run the mile, and I asked Anna, I was like, do you think I could run 50 yards as fast as they're running the entire mile? And she just laughed. Um, I mean, they're like, I think the winner was like 3 minutes and 47 seconds. I mean, they're just hauling. And they look so good running. I mean, it's just, it looks like effortless, and they're 
killing it. And I was talking to someone about when I go jogging, like, I feel like I'm running pretty good, and I run past something that's got, like, a glass reflection. And it's just like, oh, man, I look terrible. <laughs> I thought I was, like, thinner than that. I thought I was running faster than that. I'm, like, beat red and in pain. And, like, you look at it, and it's like, okay, I'm getting from here to there. It's not pretty. It's struggling. I'm hating it some of the time. Sometimes a Christian life is like that. It's not always just a, a beautiful picture and you're just running carefree. Sometimes it's that struggle and it might be a bit ugly and there's some of that just holding on. And we're told to hold on because he who has called us is faithful. Not us, it is God who is faithful. And then finally we're told to consider one another. And we saw how strong that word is. Just in chapter 3, verse 1, we're told to consider Jesus, to look at him, to study him, to come to know him, to understand him. Now the exact same word is used. To, we look at one another. We study one another, consider one another, come to understand one another. Time and effort put into one another with the goal of stirring up one another for love and good works, to stir up affections in each other's hearts for Christ, to push us forward in our sanctification and perseverance. So we give all these kind of positive motivations of what this should mean in our life. And now as we transition and continue, he's going to kind of abruptly switch over to a warning. He's going to give us a warning that considering Jesus and not drawing near and not holding fast and not considering one another has deadly consequences. Jesus changes everything one way or the other for you. As we get into the sermon, this isn't like a real feel-good sermon. I'll just tell you up front. It is, in a sense, and it's not in a sense. Visitors here, people first time, listen to what it's saying. We, you've heard us sing of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. We're going to complete that picture now with a look at a God who is vengeful and wrathful. Hang with me through the message Listen to what it has to say. Let the text speak for itself. There's kind of three things I want to do in the passage today, and we'll move through it pretty quickly here, I think. I should never say that because I don't really know. (laughs) First, I want to see, just look at 26 through 31 and see the picture of God that it paints. What kind of God is it? And it's a God of wrath and judgment. And then I want to go back and I want to look at the warning and see the warning in the context of Hebrews and then specifically this warning this morning. And finally, what this warning should produce, should promote in our lives. Hopefully you were listening as Adam read through and you heard an incredibly scary, somewhat terrifying passage. A picture of God as a God of wrath and judgment. First in verse 26 and 27, well really verse 27, we see kind of three pictures of God's wrath and judgment. We see a legal picture of it, we see an emotional picture of it, and we see a physical or material picture of it. From the legal aspect, we see that God's wrath comes in the form of judgment. You do stand before God as judge. There is a, a right and a wrong, there is guilty Not guilty. Guilty or covered. It comes in the form of of legal judgment. 
And sometimes we can keep it in that box, and it's a little easier to, to keep God in that box of just kind of a sterile courtroom type of setting, and he's just. The next part, I think, is a little maybe harder for us to accept or rejoice in, and that is an aspect of an emotional aspect to God's wrath and God's judgment. You see there in the text, in verse 27, it says, But a fearful expectation in a fury of fire. Literally, it speaks there of God's wrath as a zeal of fire, a zeal that burns hot, a fiery passion. I say God is not just a little bit angry. He's not just a little bit bothered by sin. He is passionately on fire against it. He's zealously against it. Enough so that in verse 31 we see it is a fearful thing. Literally, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One writer said it this way. He talked about, you think about the terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God and then you put with that God's omniscience and God's holiness and God's omnipotence. And there's nothing in the world nearly as terrifying as being an enemy in the hands of an omnipotent, angry God. And then we see there's a physical or a material aspect to God's wrath and God's judgment. And again, there in verse 27, it's a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, a fire that consumes, it swallows up the sinner in flames of legal and passionate judgment. Consume there isn't the idea of annihilation. It means uh, to swallow up in, in judgment, to swallow up in justice. There is a real physical, material aspect to God's judgment and God's wrath. It takes place literally. Verse 27, this is a picture of God's wrath and God's judgment. A picture of who God is. And again, this is not, I'm not trying to paint for you that this is the total of who God is. We sang the love of God. This morning, we sang of his mercy and his grace and his righteousness. We looked at Jesus Christ and the work of God and God's grace and God's holiness. But in that, God is also passionately furious with sin. And he will judge it in a real way. Let's go on and look at how this continues to paint a picture of God for us. We'll drop down to verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If this isn't at least part of your view of God, whatever your your view of God is, however you look at him, if this isn't at least a slice or a part of who God is, you don't have a full, whole picture of God. It's a terrible, the most terrifying thing possible to fall into the hands of an angry God. He is vengeful for his glory. He is jealous for it. 
Yet we barely ever hear that. It's not really a fun message to preach. In this age, we we don't want to hear it because we don't believe that that's helpful. Or maybe we don't believe that it's true. When we think of God, we think, you know, he's more like a a buddy. He's my friend. And yes, there's parts in there where God refers to himself as a friend of David or a friend of Moses. But God's more than just your buddy. He's not one of the good old boys. He's not a coddling father. He is a father and gentle and caring, but there's a fuller picture of our God. I think often we look at God and we think, here's how God enters in our minds and our our thinking a lot of times, that, you know, we give him a short moment of gratitude and thankfulness when, you know, we get out of a tight situation or when... We, a prayer is answered the way we were wanting and the timing we were, we were wanting it to happen. Um, or, you know, things just went our way. And then we give an extended a time of questioning when things don't go our way. And that prayer wasn't answered the way you thought it should be in the time you thought it should be. When you don't really get out of that tight jam, something tragic might happen. And we have the standard that as long as God is is acting and doing and explained in a way that makes sense to me and fits within my, my parameters of fairness and my parameters of this is what God should be like. And we simply create a God in our own image who fits our felt needs. And there's a bigger picture of God painted in the Bible. And this is part of it. This is part of who our God is. And finally, we'll see a little more about the wrath and judgment of God in verse 28 and 29. It says, Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has sanct- by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? The argument here for the overwhelming judgment that God will bring. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. You can turn there if you want or just jot it down. I'll read a few verses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 2. It says, If there was found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. There's the reference that our apostle is looking back to. Being stoned to death, that's got to be like a a terrible way to die. I don't know why I'm laughing. That's got to be terrible. 
He says it's going to be a whole lot worse for the one who profanes, and we'll look more closely exactly what he's saying there, but the one who profanes the name of Christ, the work of Christ. Death would be preferable to being consumed forever in the fury of God's wrath. And why is it? He gives the comparison there. Because the law of Moses, there was a promise and there was a command. But in the new covenant, in this new arrangement, remember Christ has changed everything. There is promise and there is fulfillment. We look to the Christ who has fulfilled, who has been the once for all sacrifice on our behalf. There is now a, a new kind of access to the Father that didn't exist then because of Jesus Christ, because of his work. He tells us the judgment will be worse. Before I I move on to the warning, I think whether we're used to hearing this kind of message or not, I think there's a sense in all of us where it's uncomfortable. You don't want to hear about this kind of God. You want him just to be full of love, and that's the end of the story, right? Not really when we think through it theologically. I think from some of our past, we've kind of, I think we need to think through it. We've gone in this trend. Is maybe in our past we've come from a, a place where grace was almost completely absent. And there was just law preaching or legalism preaching or performance-based righteousness promoted and so what happens is we react to that and rightfully so that grace must be what we preach time and time and time and time again and where we live and what we celebrate and so that's what we do if you've been here any time at all you know that we continue to run back to by grace the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ But because of that, I think there's been a reaction then that there is never a moment in which you, the judgment of God is taught or spoken of. Because we don't want to, you know, twist someone's arm. I don't know if you've ever been in a service where, I was actually in a youth group once where they showed this movie of like what it might be like in hell. I mean, it's just like terrifying. So you're showing this movie and then at the end they're like, who wants to pray right now? And, of course, everyone's like, I'll pray right now just to make sure. And there's kind of this just a real misuse of, you know, I'll scare someone into saying a prayer, and then I'll chalk it up to a, another salvation in the youth group. Um, and so we've rightfully <laughs> reacted to that. But I think in doing so, we've taken judgment out as any sort of reality or motive for convincing someone to follow after Christ. And then we've moved from just using it as a way to convince someone into just, let's just remove it totally from our, our language and our preaching to a step now where I think a vast majority of the churches in America are, and that is, let's just remove it from the character of God altogether. It's not helpful, it's not healthy, this is not who he is. Again, it's not all who God is, but if it's not part of your view of who God is, then you don't have a biblical view of God. 
So I say that then as we switch gears now into the warning, in that the just wrath of God can be motivation for us. And in fact, the warnings of God serve the promises of God. We've talked about that over and over again. That the warnings prod us on to believe and lay hold of the promise. All right, so this is who our God is as we look at the warning. The warnings of Hebrews, there's warnings kind of strung in and out through Hebrews. If you've been with us, you've seen several of them now. There's kind of five major warning passages. There's one in chapter 2, chapter 3 and chapter 4 work as a second. Chapter 5 into chapter 6 work as a third. Chapter 10, where we are right now, is the fourth. And there's one in chapter 12. And they really all work together. They're woven into the sermon. And there's promise and beauty and Jesus Christ is superior and application and warning. And the warning, it doesn't come that we have a God who is faithful and a God who is love and a God who is gracious. The warning doesn't come and then just erase all that. The warning and the promise work together. They serve one another. So that when you hear a warning from God, by grace you are reminded and driven back to the promise. That God gives you ears to hear that warning. And these warnings kind of escalate as they go through Hebrews. In chapter 2, if you remember all the way back, I think chapter 2 is the one where it talks about um, take heed lest you drift away. That, and it kind of that, just without even knowing it, you've kind of drifted away from your center point. That idea is when you're, you know, you're out in the water, not looking at the shore, and before you know it, you're way down here and your towel and you know, cooler are way back there. And you've noticed, oh man, I've drifted. It says, take heed. By the time we get to chapter 12, you're just all out rejecting to hear the voice from heaven. And the thing is, these progress, and we might think, okay, I'm not a chapter 10 or 12 person, so I don't need to listen to this. I'll just, you know, all it takes is a little bit of drifting. And now you need that warning for you in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Today, while you can still hear my voice, take heed, as it says there. And then further in chapter 6, and now this incredibly strong warning in chapter 10. If you'll flip with me to Hebrews chapter 3, I think there's two verses that help us understand how we're to look at the warnings. And then we'll go back and look specifically at the warning in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 6 and verse 14. Verse 6. You've got to Pay attention to the tense, the verb tenses that are used here. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Similar in verse 14, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. And that is saying right now you are a child of God if at the end you're still believing. It's not saying you will be a child of God. It's saying right now your confession is real. If at the end you're still confessing. And so all these warnings are forward-looking warnings. That yes, you have confessed Christ, but endure to the end. Because it is at the end that our faith is proven genuine and true. So it's a nuance there that we're not saying you're not saved until the end of your life. We're saying right now you belong to the house of God if indeed 
you continue holding fast to the faith. And that's that idea of perseverance. And we know through Hebrews that it is grace that has brought us into that relationship and it is grace that will keep us. We're not now throwing out grace as if it's just a performance-based system that keeps us persevering. But we do know that God gives us means in our perseverance. And with his promise, he gives us means. And one of those means is the warnings that you heed them and that you fear God and heed the warnings. So we see these working together And it's kind of this forward looking at the warnings for our Christian life. So in chapter 10, you flip back there if you've turned. Who is this, generally then, who is this warning for? I'd say it's for the same people who every warning has been for. It's for the the visible church is probably the easiest way to say it. It would be to say it is for us, our congregation. You can see that in the language that the apostle uses. He uses we and us all throughout, kind of that inclusive, including himself, just like Adam will do as he preaches or I'll do when I preach, including ourselves in this body that we must continue in the faith or we must whatever it might be. So he's speaking to the body of Christ. He's speaking to the visible church. And so the the assumption is If you remember a while back, Adam talked about it. The charitable assumption is that as I preach, you're here, you're singing, you're worshiping, and the charitable assumption is that you're a child of God. But likely in most congregations, there are some who aren't confessing Christ. There's some who are profaning his name. And so he's looking and he's warning generally, we, us, the visible church, this warning is for you to listen to. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not planning on falling away, so I don't need to listen. The warnings are here for your endurance and your perseverance. We see it a little further as we come um, into verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth... It has the idea of someone who has sat within the congregation, who has heard truth proclaimed... Truth proclaimed through the preached word. Truth proclaimed through fellowship with other believers. Later on in verse 30 and 31, it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. As I would refer to you as God's people, the people of God. The apostle does the same thing here. And so it's for the visible church, it's for you, it's for you who I'm assuming have confessed Christ, and that is that you will endure. But then a little more specifically then, who is the very precise object of this warning? Verse 26 tells us, it's for one who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I don't think here, you read commentaries, you get a lot of different ideas. And I, I would pretty confidently suggest that it's not a one specific unpardonable sin that he's talking about. That if you go on sinning and you find the magic sin that's unforgivable, God's grace can overcome any of your sin. But it talks about the one who goes on Sinning. Let's look at numbers just for a moment. 
This is where he borrows the language from. And Numbers says it in a way that is easier, I think, to get the meaning. You can just listen if you don't want to try to find it back there in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 through 31 says, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand... That's where the language comes from in Hebrews, going sinning deliberately, and it has the idea of that high hand, of just a in-your-face, I don't care. Right, wrong, I don't care. I'm sinning, and I'm doing it boldly. I'm sinning, and I'm doing it in the face of God with no regrets. That sort of high-handedness. person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So what we're not saying, we're not saying it's someone who struggles with sin from time to time. That would be each one of us. It's not even necessarily talking about the one I think in our lives, we all, in our Christian journey and walk, we come to find the specific temptations that plague us. And where someone might seem to have consistent victory in an area, in that area, it's a battle that rages in. And it's not even talking about that besetting sin that might be a struggle for you until the day you die. It's not looking for clear-cut victory in every area of life. That's, that's not what's being pushed here, some sort of perfectionism. There's battles that you struggle with now and you'll be struggling with forever. And God, by his grace, will continue to keep you and help you in that fight. It's not the Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. Speaking of the high priest and speaking of God, it says that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Speaking there of the high priest. It's not talking about the wayward, the ignorant, the one who is weak. God looks at us. He, he knows that we are but dust. That moves him not with disgust for us, but with love and pity. That's what Psalm 103 says. When he sees us and he sees our weakness, he isn't disgusted by it, but he takes pity on us and he gives mercy and grace. So I'm not talking about a struggling believer. What it's talking about is the one who has left the fight. You just don't, it's not worth the fight anymore. And you look at it and you decide this, you deliberately decide and act in this way that I can find more satisfaction, I can find more meaning, I am going to give my ultimate allegiance to something that isn't Jesus. And if he's got a problem with it, that's his problem. That sort of attitude and that sort of life. It goes on and explains it a little further in verse 29 when it compares the punishment 
as we looked at earlier, it says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? So number one, it is disregard for the person of Christ. To spurn, maybe your translation says it, but literally it is to trample underfoot, to consider of no value and no worth the person of Jesus Christ. If that is how you treat and live your life, to trample underfoot the person of Jesus Christ. There's one who has disregard for the redemptive work of Christ. Again, in, in verse 29, one who has profaned the blood of the covenant. The idea of profane means to, to treat as common or of no value. And you think of coming last Sunday, we observed the Lord's Supper together, and you come, and if it's nothing more to you than just a little sip of wine or a little sip of juice, and then I'm on my way, sinning happily. That's profaning the blood. Or finally, disregard for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that would be someone who shows up in the congregation of believers, shows up in a church like this, where the means of grace by the power of the Spirit are going forward in, in word and prayer and fellowship. And you totally disregard it. You insult it. It's an affront to you. We see the consequence of these warnings. In verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So you have to ask, should you be scared? <laughs> Should you be nervous right now? No, not in the sense of this undermines the promises of God. No, not in the sense that you have to make it on your own in a performance-based way. No, not in the sense that we've suddenly set aside the grace and love of God and chosen something different. But yes, in the sense that you should fear God. Yes, in the sense that you should evaluate, are you treasuring sin in your life? Yes, in the sense that it should drive you back to Hebrews chapter 2, where we looked at, take heed lest you begin to drift away. Yes, in the sense that you should see where, a look at your life, where your allegiance lies. Yes, in the sense that it should continually drive you back to God. The warnings aren't meant to shock you into thinking the promises aren't true, but they're also not meant to just be dismissed. They serve your perseverance. This passage is one of the strongest warnings that we have. Listen to this quote from John Owen. It's a like a half page, so hang with it here. It says, as he looks at his sin and then considers Jesus Christ, looking at it and considering Jesus Christ, he says, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son, for his blood, to the Holy Ghost, for his grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in, 
And can I keep myself out of dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head with any boldness before him? Do I account communion with him of so little value that for this vile lust's sake I have scarce left him any room in my heart? How shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I've despised them all and esteemed them a thing of naught that I might harbor more lust in my heart. Have I obtained a view of God's fatherly countenance that I might behold his face and provoke him to his face? Was my soul washed that room might be made for new defilement? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the end of the death of Christ? Shall I grieve the spirit whereby I am sealed to the day of redemption? He goes on and asks, here's the honest questions you need to ask yourself as you sin and you enjoy your sin and you over and over again choose your sin over and against Christ and you look for peace and you look for reconciliation and you look for meaning totally outside of Christ. And be driven back to Christ and consider him. So here's kind of the juxtaposition of the text. And we'll finish up right here. We're told to consider Jesus. We're told to consider him specifically as our high priest. And we're told to consider his sacrifice. And that should move us to with confidence draw near to God. There's a God, and we saw how the author painted part of who our God is. This is anger against sin. And yet, in Jesus Christ, he's made a way for us to, with boldness and confidence, run to him. Not run from him, but to run to him. To draw near. Not because you're perfect. Not because you've conquered sin. Because he who has called you is faithful. Because the righteousness of God is accounted to you. And this warning is meant to serve you, not to scare you that you run from God, but that you run directly to Him. You draw near to Him with boldness and with confidence. That you would hold fast. Hold fast the truth. You consider one another. The role that you play in God's ordained means of the church in one another's sanctification and perseverance. How you can spur one another on to love and to good works. We see this picture of God and yet what it does is it drives us right to him, not away from him. We don't begin to doubt his love and grace because all of this wrath that we see, all of this fury, it was poured out on Jesus Christ. He took it on your behalf. That's why in Luke, as as it comes to the end, Jesus Christ pleads for this cup to pass from him. And with anguish and terror of heart, he sweats drops of, of blood. Because he knows it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the angry God. And Jesus, the perfect son of God, did that for you. And that's why we're told this changes everything. 
Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath. You no longer have to hide from God. Draw near to him. He is Father, Abba, Father. But here's the warning. If you don't want the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, there no longer remains any forgiveness. You got two options. Fall into the hands of a terrifying, angry God or receive boundless grace and love in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're told right at the end of Hebrews 10 and verse 18, the, the end of that section before we transition, says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus Christ was the final word, was the final offering for sin. To look elsewhere, you won't find it. See the wrath of God in the cross of Christ. It took Jesus Christ absorbing that wrath to open that curtain so that we can have access to God. We live in peace and joy because of the righteousness of Christ. So when you hear of wrath of God, you run to him and draw near to him in confidence in Jesus Christ. And as his child, when the warning goes forward and you hear that warning, You take on that armor and you fight sin. You don't grow lazy in the battle. As Romans 8.13 says, that we are always killing or mortifying the flesh. The moment you quit battling doesn't mean that you've reached perfection. It means that you've lost. It's a fight. It's a fight. And it's an ugly race sometimes. Sometimes you're not like shiny, bright, perfect Christian. It's just ugly, but it gets done. You draw near, you hold fast, all by the grace of God. We don't set aside the grace or the promise for one moment, but we recognize that these warnings are a means for us to fear God and to go hard after him. Then finally, I think, now what means do you put in your life to help you with this? Again, it just, it's the exact same application as last week. You just look back into it. Verse 25. Don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to be with the people of God. Secondly, don't let that become a habit. Not only do you not meet with, but don't let it become a habit not to meet with people. That can become a trend. And before you know it, you drift. You do it with the intent of encouraging one another. To encourage one another in our perseverance. Fourthly, that we do it with more and more intensity and meaning as we say the day of the Lord approaching. Hebrews 3 and 4, they tell you, repent while it is today, lest your heart grow hard. While it is today. Don't hold on to it and think, I'll think about it next year. Repent while it is today. Warnings are meant to be heeded. If it makes you feel a little bit uneasy, that's okay. Let it drive you to the promise. Realize that your righteousness is in heaven. Hide in the shadow of the cross. Let's pray.